Go Speed Racer Go. This week, the province has all but banned photo radar in Edmonton. But city council is focusing on the start of budget. And we get a new police commissioner who looks a lot like an old police commissioner. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 243. I think we have both re-earned our podcaster cards. Uh, We made the right call about the announcement as we're recording today on Thursday. Uh, It was about three hours ago. The government announced that photo radar is banned on the ring roads in Edmonton. And we'll get to that, of course. But I think we have to start at the maybe most important item, though from the content that council was debating, it wasn't quite that important this week, budget has started. Uh, We have talked about the impact of this budget and how we're going to see councillors playing some budget chicken and we're going to see fights around this 7% increase. And well, they started this week. Yeah, budget deliberations are underway. Uh, We're not sure when exactly they're going to finish, but we're hoping that by the time we record our next episode, uh, they'll have an update. As we did explained previously, this is an adjustment. So it's for this 2024 year and knock-on effects in subsequent years. So it should, it should take quite a bit less time than when they do the whole four-year budget in one big go. As you mentioned, the 7.09% proposed tax increase on the operating side and a net increase of about $80 million on the capital budget side of things. Council has started to discuss which of those things they're going to go for and which of the things they're not. There's always, of course, unfunded packages, things that have emerged or that arise out of previous council decisions that need to get decided upon. And then there's just typical growth pressures. The city continues growing over the course of the year, inflation, other costs change. And so the budget needs to be adjusted to uh, address those things. As we are recording so far, they've only made two decisions, Troy. And I think some good context as we enter this budget discussion is to look south to our neighbors in Calgary, who just after three days of debate approved a 7.8% tax increase in their budget adjustment, compared to Edmonton, who had predicted before this adjustment to have around a 5% increase, and even with the uh, proposed administrative adjustment, would only be about 7% increase. So looking around at our peers, this 7% doesn't quite feel out of line. Our proposed increase is also quite a bit smaller than what they just approved in Calgary. They had previously for 2024 approved a 3.4% tax increase. And as you say, this 9 to 6 vote is for a 7.8. So that's quite a bit more than our 5% to 7.09%. And it does reflect, I think, some of the comments we've heard councillors and the mayor make over the course of the week. Mayor Sohi has been talking about the need to just be cognizant of how much city services cost. And yes, there's pressure from the usual suspects, the Chamber of Commerce and others, to keep the tax increase low or at least hold it to the 5% they originally approved. That's what they've been asking for. But at the same time, council's hearing repeatedly that citizens don't want reduced services. And they don't, in, in fact, in some cases, they expect better service than what we're getting currently things like snow removal and other things like that. So there's there's a challenge always when it comes to budget. And those are some of the pressures that council will have to grapple with as they decide on what that final tax increase is going to look like. And it started with just some procurement for new diesel buses. 
Yeah, Mayor. So he put forward this motion. It was carried 11 to 2 with just Councillors Principe and Rice opposed. This is almost $16 million to buy 20 new diesel buses to help deal with growth. Some of that is coming from what um, the city calls its pay-as-you-go fund. The rest of this is coming from the LRT reserve. And if you're thinking, hmm, why did Principe and Rice oppose this? I challenge you, dear listener, to find a motion that they will vote yes to. Uh, I expect we will not see any of them through this budget process. And this is, of course, starting with the capital budget. These are the tend to be the bigger ticket items. The, the higher dollar amount items tend to be on the uh, the capital budget. And so certainly those are the ones that are going to attract the, the folks who want to vote now. What better target in the capital budget than bike lanes? Uh, you'll recall in our four-year capital budget, we voted for an accelerated plan to implement the bike lane strategy across the city. It came at a cost of 100 million of debt financed dollars. That was the first thing in the piggy bank that councillors tried to raid in this budget season. So Councillor Principe put forward this motion seconded by Councillor Rice, of course, to try to reduce the funding for that capital profile. So the accelerated implementation approach three for bike lanes, reduce that from $100 million over the four years to $50 million with uh, roughly equivalent reductions in 2024, 2025, and 2026. They had to restate this to actually vote on it because initially it looks like they were trying to just say, we want to take $50 million from bike lanes and put it into the tax levy. And that's, those things aren't quite the same because they're in different budgets, as we've explained before. So they restated this and, uh, and put forward that motion. And it failed thankfully, eight to four with councillors Cartmel and Hamilton also voting to try to axe the bike lane funding in half. But thankfully, thankfully, it failed. This was not a motion put forward with a whole bunch of preparatory work to understand, you know, where we could save some money and all of that. This was put forward specifically because they knew that it would fail, but they get to tell their constituents and future potential voters in the upcoming election that they voted no to bike lanes and they tried to take 50 million bucks away from it and they tried to lower your taxes and they failed to do that. The rest of council wouldn't let them do it here. You know, this is a political statement. That's what they did here with this motion. And I think this is indicative of what we're going to see going forward, where before this process started, there was some warnings issued basically explicitly to these four councillors, Cartmel, Rice, Hamilton and Principe that we don't want to see political grandstanding on these budget motions. And they opened up the capital budget debate by doing precisely that. Uh, So the game of budget chicken is now, I think, earnestly afoot. And I thought it was exceptionally funny. Right before adjournment, the clerks said, hey, also, we're offering courses on how to write good amendments. And Mayor Sowie's like, I strongly encourage you to take this opportunity. (laughs) Feels like a thing they should have announced before the budget deliberations started. But still, that sounds like a useful thing for several of the folks on council to uh, take advantage of. Monday is when they're scheduled to resume. This is the already scheduled days, November 27th, 28th and 29th, assuming they don't extend orders any further for them to deal with the rest of capital budget and the proposed operating budget adjustments. Council did go in private to discuss one of those bills that will be coming due, and that's salary settlements. We have uh, multiple bargaining groups that are ongoing negotiation or negotiation upcoming. We can expect to see salary settlements come down the pipeline, and that will be reflected in a tax increase. There's another bill that came due just 
today at 12.30, and that's the photoradar bill. The freeze on photoradar continued and, in fact, expanded. Photoradar is now banned on provincial ring roads in the province. Anthony Henday and Stony Trail. I don't know if it's called Stony Trail the entire loop in Calgary. We're in an Edmontonian podcast, but Calgary's ring road also doesn't allow photo radar. Uh, so 22 sites located along the ring road in Edmonton will have to be decommissioned, and the city has the option to move them to, quote unquote, areas that are focused on safety, like construction zones, school zones, and playground zones. This starts December 1st. The government said it's taking this action based on receiving data from across the province. And interestingly, in the news release, Troy, they they kept talking about fishing holes. They used the term fishing holes a few times. And I feel like they wrote this news release in the wrong season. Like, I don't know if many people are out at their fishing holes in the in the fall and, and just about winter, but I digress. We were right in that we did not expect them to return the photoradar program or to eliminate the um, the pause. Uh, but I don't think either of us expected such a strange announcement, strange in that it's so focused just on two ring roads, the, the, the one in Calgary and the one in Edmonton. And this, you know, feels also, as you would expect, I suppose, very political in that it's about traffic safety and not revenue generation. Even the, you know, the, the constant reference to the fishing holes makes it sound like these things are here just to try to generate revenue and to do nothing about improving traffic safety. It's a bit of a strange announcement. It's strange given the context of how we got here. Back in 2019, the NDP government at the time initiated the pause on photo radar. No new sites were able to be uh, established. And at that point, they also banned photo radar in transition zones. So the typical complaint about photo radar where, you know, speed changes and you don't know what speed it is, yeah. it hasn't been the case since 2019. So a bit tired of hearing that argument. But one of the UCP changes uh, in more recent years was in order for a photo radar location to continue to operate in the city of Edmonton, the city of Edmonton had to publish data to the province that satisfied their concerns that that site was existing for safety reasons. You know, there was some level of collisions or traffic safety or whatever data that the province deemed acceptable to prove that these photo radar locations were acceptable. So given that these photo radar locations have continued to operate in the ensuing years, means that the city of Edmonton did that and proved to provincial satisfaction that these locations were for safety. So it strikes me as incredibly disingenuous for the province to ban arbitrarily particular roadways saying that it doesn't contribute to safety because by their own metrics, they do. They just don't want them on the ring roads where people Indeed. drive fast, right? I looked this up, Troy, because we are an Edmonton podcast. So it does appear that the whole thing is called Stony Trail in Calgary. And I just thought this was interesting. It's 92 kilometers long. The Anthony Henday in Edmonton is 78 kilometers long, yet we have 22 sites and they have just eight on their ring road. And so with this ban, the province has said, as, as you pointed out, that we can redeploy those if we like to construction sites or school zones or other high-risk areas. So, I mean, Edmonton has the opportunity to do 22 more of these. Calgary can only do eight. That's kind of interesting. We've long known that Edmonton has uh, some of the highest concentration of photo radar, even across the country, uh, definitely in the province. But that is because we've done the science, right? We had a University of Alberta study that said that this is uh, necessary for safety in the city of Edmonton. And we've gotten an office of traffic safety that's gotten behind this. It's not an accident that Edmonton has gotten behind photo radar. It's intentionality because 
you can issue more tickets with photo radar to influence a wider swath of behaviors and it also is substantially cheaper to have a civilian officer in a truck issuing tickets versus a uniformed police officer on the street who can only do what six tickets an hour right and this is not to mention the huge personal danger of enforcing on a highway so from my perspective this is all downside for everyone involved and it's downside for the province too they get less revenue uh, if you'll recall, the province takes 60% of all photo radar fines. 40 go to provincial general coffers, but 20% goes to the provincial victim of crimes fund. Only 40% remains with the municipality in the city of Edmonton. It's a pretty significant hit to provincial coffers to just basically throw this money away. I suppose politically worth it. Uh, they're purchasing these votes with photo radar dollars. It's interesting, Troy, when you, you talk about the split of revenue there and that the majority of this 60% goes to the province, because I'm reading the news release that they sent out about this decision. <laughs> and it says explicitly, traffic fine revenue is split between the province and municipalities with the province receiving 40% and municipalities receiving 60%. So the news release seems to suggest that most of the money goes to the municipalities. Far be it from the UCP to manipulate facts to stoke anger against municipalities when it's actually them padding their coffers. I, this has never happened before. <laughs> So the breakdown, as you said, 20% victims of crime fund, 40% provincial government remainder goes to the municipalities. This is outlined on the city of Edmonton's page about automated traffic enforcement, which we'll put in the show notes. Yeah. And if I'm being charitable to the UCP, which I shouldn't be, but I will be, um, I think they simply just don't know. I don't think that this <laughs> photo radar policy is based on a lot of effective research and decent policymaking, not the least of which because in their release, they say photoradar is banned on ring roads. Well, Edmonton has two ring roads, right? We've got the Anthony Henday, but we've got another ring road that is the Yellowhead, White Mud, 170th Street, and 75th Wayne Gretzky Drive. That's not a ring road. Come on. <laughs> I'll say out loud what everyone's thinking as we listen to this podcast. That is not a ring road. It was... Labeled a ring road in Jeopardy in a previous episode. So your editors let it through, Max. So it's <laughs> it's fact. I am not arguing that the province has banned it on this ring road. But yeah. the level of imprecise language, someone like me could be confused by that. And yeah. I think if they had asked anyone from the city of Edmonton about this, someone might have said, hey, maybe say Anthony Henday instead of ring roads so that no one is confused. But I don't think they consulted anyone about this policy. I don't think they uh, thought through this policy other than, hey, if we say this, will we get votes? Yep, ship it. Thus, UCP policy is born. <laughs> so switching tracks a little bit, and you'll notice I used the tracks pun again. Guess what's coming up? Well done. It's trains. Sometimes on this podcast, we're a little bit down on the local media ecosystem. Uh, you know, we're fighting the good fight at Taproot to try and bring coverage to these oft uncovered things. This week, I want to do something entirely different and give huge accolades to the CBC for some exceptional journalism related to the Valley Line LRT. There were two CBC investigate reports that came out in the past couple of weeks, one of them digging in further to unreported problems on the Valley Line LRT, and another that was digging into safety issues during the construction. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's a great piece of work. And, and I will say as a independent news publisher here in Edmonton that I think this is exactly the kind of work that CBC should be doing. So this is a months-long investigation where they looked at a whole bunch of documents. Like they have the resources 
to both request these things and go through them and analyze them and publish the information. I think it's a really great example of the kind of work that CBC could be doing in our communities to really strengthen local news. Now, we could go a step further and say that if it's funded by taxpayers, it should be Creative Commons. We should be able to use it and republish it in other places. But I won't go down that rabbit <laughs> hole right now. I will just simply say that I'm glad this kind of uh, journalism exists in, in our city. And so, as you say, there's kind of a couple of things they looked at. One was about injury rates and the safety record for trans ed. And, and they found that injury rates for project workers were more than five times the industry average in 2020. And they have some data showing about 283 near-miss incidents, 350 first aid incidents, 93 medical treatment cases, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if those are exceptionally high or not. A spokesperson for TransEd said that they exceed all averages and industry norms for occupational health and safety. But there's a bit of a concern about a lack of transparency on this information that is calling it into question a little bit. So that's the first one. And then the second one is was uh, what you pointed out, which is about un previously unreported problems that contributed to the delay. And while I'm glad they went and did this investigation and uncovered some of the stuff at the same time, it's like, yeah, but the train is open now. So water under the bridge? Like, we're not going to litigate it. Like, we, we already had the financial protections in place. It's good to know. Maybe we can learn something so that we don't replicate the same issues when we build Valley Line West. But otherwise, isn't this just rubbing salt in the wounds that it's three years late? Uh, in the past week, I was trying to buy something on Facebook Marketplace. And the guy I was talking to, you know, after a few messages, I started getting a little bit skeeved out. I was like, this, this feels like he might be scamming me or something. So I went to his Facebook Marketplace profile and I looked and of his 35 Marketplace reviews, 24 of them were one star reviews saying, don't buy from this person. It's not a good review. I didn't buy from this person. Smart. TransEd is going to be operating not just Valley Line Southeast, but Valley Line West for 30 years. We are in bed with them for the foreseeable forever. So the Valley Line was supposed to open around 2020. We see a lot of problems related to mispoured concrete, problems related to, you know, sloppy work that didn't pass inspection. And you also saw a lot of first aid incidences, a bunch of near miss incidences in 2020. So what this indicates to me is that we've offloaded the quote unquote risk of this project onto a third party contractor via P3 and said, you know, delays are your problem, not ours. And the private company did what private companies do. They said, we don't want to delays. We're okay with paying the human cost of this. And so this feels to me in the same way that if you order from a company and they subcontract to a factory in a third world country that has not great human rights records and not great workplace protections, you feel like you're washing your hand of it, but you're actually supporting the problem. And if we saw these workplace incidences in a city managed projects, if we saw this poor quality construction in a city managed project, there would be an audit report, there would be firings, there would be hell to pay. And TransEd does it. And we say, this is fine because they're assuming the risk for this project? Well, I'm not sure that there would be hell to pay. I think it really depends on 
what the, you know, as they say, the sort of averages and, and, and norms are for projects of this size. Like it's just, it's a huge project. It's an undertaking. You're going to have some incidents no matter what you do on a project that runs this long and and is this expansive. Like I, I think the best safety planning in the world is probably going to result in something, right? So there's that part of it. And I, I understand what you're saying about, you know, we're going to be uh, working with these folks for quite some time. But to that, I would say, yeah, for operations, like really, we want to know if they're going to operate this thing for the next 30 years and maintain this thing for the next 30 years, like how are they able to do that now that the thing is up and running? I think you're partially right. There could be some interpretation here that the reason there was so many of these things in 2020 is because they were rushing to get this done. And that would be bad. And there should be some critical accounting for that and some some understanding of how to avoid that kind of thing in the future, even if it just means that when we in the future are forced into a P3, we adjust our contracts accordingly to make those some of the important outcomes that we care about as a city. But I'm not sure we're going to be able to change anything for this previous agreement. And I'm not sure that the construction issues that led to the delay have a direct bearing on the relationship with them to operate this thing. I think you're right especially given that we've signed the P3s for Valley Line West, that I don't know that there's a lot we can do about this. What was really notable to me is uh, when CBC did the reporting on some of the construction issues that they uncovered, they did some on-camera segments with Councillor Cartmel, who's an engineer and who, you know, likes to talk about accountability. And he was frankly shocked by some of the things. He's like, I had no idea about this. You were the first person telling me about this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for... A train line that was three years overdue, the city councilor who ostensibly is holding this company accountable had no idea about any of these problems. I do think that indicates to me a really, really gross lack of accountability. And maybe that's the part that we're solving. Maybe we can't solve transed's injury incident rates, but the fact that we don't know about any of it, I think is pretty concerning for me as a citizen. I think it must be more concerning for members of council who don't feel like they have any opportunity to hold this company accountable for the project delivery. I really don't want to come across as if I'm just trying to defend poor safety <laughs> here, but I just am confused about it, right? I, I, I see in the reporting that there's a desire for Transed's internal information, their internal data, and a reluctance by Transed to publish it. But we do have public OHS data that WCB publishes. There were 27 orders against TransEd from 2017 to 2022. One was rescinded and the rest were all complied with. Like we do have some data. I'm not sure what we're expecting the internal data is going to tell us that this other data doesn't. I think it could be a good thing to improve the transparency of these kinds of projects. And if that is the outcome here, that we we get greater transparency or at least some expectations around the kind of information that's made available in future agreements, that would be a positive. If you haven't read the stories, you should go read them. They're well done, lots of information. They're very information rich and, uh, and I'm glad they exist. Those reports delved into some of the things that can go wrong with a company and what can go exceptionally wrong with a company is chapter 11 bankruptcy when they go belly up and say, ah, sorry, can't, can't provide service anymore. And that is what happened to our electric bus manufacturer, Proterra, which we talked about this a few weeks ago and we were assured, you know, through the media and through uh, administrative reporting that eh, this will be fine. We still have support contracts. You know, we, we've got parts, we've got staff that can maintain these buses. Everything's fine. 
Mac, it appears everything is not quite fine as the majority of our electric buses are not on the road anymore. Yeah, this is kind of an annoying story to me because we asked them about this. We asked the city. We were the first to see this bankruptcy and thought, oh, this could be an issue. Like, what's the deal? And as you say, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. And now we learn that Edmonton has actually incurred over $1 million in U.S. dollars in losses due to problems with its electric buses, hundreds of thousands of dollars on internal labor and replacement costs, $200,000 on battery blankets. With Proterra filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection down in the United States, we have an unsecured claim of more than $8 million U.S. dollars. So the city is seeking about 1.3 million of that in advance, as well as assurances that contracts will be fulfilled. Contracts that we understood were already fulfilled when we asked the city about this previously. A technician uh, with the ATU, Local 569 Union, says that more than half of the 60 buses we bought need replacement parts. That's concerning. You'll remember off the top of this episode, we talked about one of the first capital budget adjustments that was made was the purchase of 20 additional diesel buses. And we said the word diesel. If you had asked me a year and a half ago, will Edmonton be buying any non-electric buses in the future? I would have said, you know, probably not. Uh, I don't think that's where we want to go for our climate goals. I don't think that's where we want to go as a city. And I don't think that's, you know, best for our long-term maintenance budgets. And yet, Mac, here we are. It should be noted that this is Proterra, one manufacturer of electric buses. There are provably good electric buses available around the world, including by New Flyer out of Winnipeg, who supplies most of our fleet of regular diesel buses. They also have electric offerings that we chose not to go with, probably through some RFP process where Proterra promised contracts that would be fulfilled. And here we are. I'm not an expert in bankruptcy law. I don't really know how this is going to go or the minutia of how city litigation is going to go. I think Just what's happening here is I'm sad. I'm sad Mm. that these buses that I was so excited for, these buses that represented Edmonton being an innovator in electrification of our fleet in advancing our climate goals, it was a failed experiment, at least in this. I hope it doesn't make us a little bit hesitant to invest in further electric infrastructure. But, you know, the purchase of additional diesel buses this year doesn't give me great hope that we're not going to correct in the opposite direction at least for the next little bit. Indeed. Well, you can take solace in the fact that we're not the only ones. BC Transit also bought 10 of these buses, found a number of deficiencies. And Bow Valley Regional Transit, which is around Banff and Canmore, quite a bit smaller, but also have about a million dollars in claims, in unsecured claims in the bankruptcy proceeding. So Edmonton certainly went bigger than the other Canadian municipalities who bought from Proterra, but weren't the only ones affected. And as you say, you know, it's not the only game in town. There are other options. I thought it was interesting in the CBC article, they even talked to an instructor at Nate who talked about, you know, the the batteries are getting better and maybe for cold winters and things like that, it will improve over time. I don't know how modular these things are or how what possibility we have to replace them with better things that last longer in the future. But maybe we can salvage, you know, these 60 electric buses and get more than just 16 of them on the road at any given time. We're blaming Proterra for a lot of this. And, you know, they filed for bankruptcy. They deserve some blame here. But I have to also think the city is pretty grossly at fault here because one of the big complaints that we heard was a complaint that the cab size in these electric buses was bad. It could only fit medium frame people, you know, people who are very small or very large couldn't really fit in the cab. And Mac, can a driver fit in a cab of a bus? 
should have been something that is very easy to find out. You know, this shouldn't require any advanced degrees. It shouldn't require knowledge of electrical systems. Put driver in cab and check if bus <laughs> meets your requirements. Why was this not done? This really doesn't give me confidence that this contract was extremely well vetted. Again, though, why is that on the city? Why would you design a bus that can't fit people who are meant to drive it? Like, that seems bizarre, no? Yeah, but why would you buy a bus that doesn't fit the people who will be driving it? Well, indeed. Indeed, yeah. So the promise of these electric buses, in addition to contributing to our climate goals, was that although they're more expensive up front, they're intended to be about 30% less expensive to service and maintain than the diesel buses. I guess that is not proving to be true in the end. Yeah, as a new owner of an electric car who was promised... Uh low maintenance costs. I'm hoping it proves to be true, Mac. Uh, <laughs> hoping for my own selfish pocketbook. And the people who watched the police's pocketbook got a new face this week who uh, looks a lot like an old face. The former chair of the Edmonton Police Commission, John McDougall, ended his term on the Edmonton Police Commission. His conclusion of his term on the police commission was punctuated by his appointing to the police commission by the province of Alberta. So this, of course, is based on the updated le legislation from 2022 that allows the UCP government to appoint up to three members of these local police commissions. So he is the third provincial appointee to Edmonton's police commission, and he will now serve another term from January 1st, 2024 to December 31st, 2026. Yeah, uh, I thought this was very weird. Uh, I thought this kind of runs counter to the spirit of having term limits on the police commission. And I also think it's very weird insofar as it is notable to me that uh, John McDougall did not retain his position as chair of the police commission. I don't have any insight as to particularly why that happened. Maybe he asked to step down for personal reasons. Maybe the commission voted him out because they weren't satisfied with his leadership. This whole thing strikes me as a lot of meddling in the police commission by the province of Alberta, which I think you and I can both agree is not great for the organization that we're hoping holds accountable the department that has our largest budget intake in the city of Edmonton. As we mentioned, he's the third and final provincial appointee. The first two were uh, Dr. Michael Lee, who operates a practice in general dentistry. The second was Dr. Jayan Nagendran, who is a cardiac surgeon and also an entrepreneur uh, focused on technology around uh, lung transplantation. And I was thinking, oh, they've broken the trend. It's not Dr. John McDougall here with the third appointee. <laughs> but in fact, he has been a member of the Canadian Armed Forces since 1989 as a Army medical technician. And he continues to serve as a clinician specializing in aviation medicine. So for whatever reason, the province has appointed three medical doctors, <laughs> or at least people in the medical sphere, to our police commission. Never let it be said that the UCP isn't friends with doctors. Troy from the booth here. That sound you're hearing on the podcast right now is Mac not laughing at this joke, which I thought was very funny. Please clap. Back to the show. One of the concerns I have with John McDougall being reappointed to the police commission is he represents a era of the police commission that I think can be punctuated by rubber stamping police requests. I think we've seen the effects of this rubber stamping of accountability in some of the behavior of the Edmonton police chief. Specifically this week, there were some comments around encampments that gave both you and I a little bit of pause, and it made me reflect 
Why is the Edmonton chief of police comfortable making these comments in public? So the context here is that in 2022, the city received about 9,000 complaints about encampments, and that was up quite a bit from previous years. And so far in 2023, they've already received nearly 15,000 complaints. And so these are these are big numbers. A lot of people are complaining about encampments. The other thing, in addition to the statistics, is of course, we've we've heard recently that a couple of people died and others were seriously injured in fires in encampments. As it gets colder, people are trying to keep warm and there's a safety risk, of course, with those encampments. The police chief, as you've pointed out, has commented about this. He said seven people died in encampment fires last year. And he's using that loss of life as a way to say, you know, we need to do something about these encampments. He said, quote, the encampment strategy needs to be, we need to get enough resources to actually take them down and then figure out if those that want to be housed can be housed. End quote. I do have some news for uh, Edmonton Police Chief Dale McPhee. We haven't quite figured out how to do that yet. We don't have a housing strategy, nor indeed do we have the funding uh, from the provincial government to do that housing. When I hear Chief McPhee speak, it sounds like a political stump speech. It sounds like he is the governor of police rather than just the chief, rather than just a bureaucrat at the head of police. And I do feel that a lot of this stems from the police commission treating him that way. The chief of police gets what the chief of police wants, and the police commission tends to operate in a way to get him what he wants rather than holding him to account for what he's asking for. I haven't seen a reversal of this trend. And in fact, with task forces like the uh, Community Safety Task Force that Councillors Cartmel and Hamilton are on, I've seen an emboldening uh, based on provincial meddling in this local board to give him even more gusto when he makes these comments in public. I don't see a solution to this. This seems to be the structure we've decided for the police. The police through the funding formula, get what the police want, and the police chief does what the police chief wants with that money. I don't see us on a trend or a path towards accountability here. No, I think you're right, and, and I just feel like we really need to hold him to account as the public for the comments that he makes. City officials would not say, take down these encampments. They would talk about dismantling them. They would talk about offering services, helping folks get help where they need it. That is not the way he talks. The chief has talked before about tripping over people downtown doing drugs. We need to hold him to account for the language that he uses, this sort of strongman language that is dehumanizing and positions himself in this position of power when the commission doesn't seem willing to hold him to account for those things. And indeed, if we're talking about addressing police violence and police conduct, when the chief of police gets in front of a microphone and acts in a particular way, should we be surprised when those down the chain emulate that behavior or enact that behavior physically in public? I, I don't think we should be, and I think that's a problem. We'll endeavor to continue highlighting these opportunities to hold the police chief to account in the future, but we don't have any time for that left in this episode. All we've got time for is the rapid fire segment. The city of Edmonton is offering up to $2,000 in grants for businesses that want to set up winter patios to help fund furniture, heaters, and blankets. This is part of the Winter City and Vibrant Streets strategies designed to bring street life to Edmonton, even in the cold of winter. The federal government is also willing to contribute to the vibrancy and are offering to ship barrels of uncapped heating oil to businesses to burn in their courtyards. 
said Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, quote, as we know, politically heating oil doesn't emit carbon when burned, so we're really excited to take climate action seriously and get our business community on board this winter. Capital Line trains won't be running between Churchill and University stations this weekend due to LRT maintenance near Corona Station, said Head of Infrastructure Adam Lachlan, quote, We want to prove that the city is competitive with our private sector counterparts. Just like TransEd, we too can keep people off the trains. Edmonton pharmacies are reporting shortages of common drugs, which could delay the filling of prescriptions for many patients. When asked about the issue, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith responded, quote, Which drugs? Wait, no, it it doesn't matter. I'll just send a couple hundred million dollars to Turkey. I'm sure they have what we need. Speaking Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton, and so too is The Pulse, your daily news briefing. It tells you everything you need to know about Edmonton every weekday morning, and you'll get short, informative updates about what is happening at City Hall, plus coverage of business, tech, food, the arts, and more. I did see come through The Pulse this week, uh, a story that Taproot did, which I think may in fact be the new managing editor Tim's first article, which was some budget lingo, which is very appreciative. You get to learn about what holding in abeyance means and what funded versus unfunded service packages or why some are called service packages and some are called capital profiles. Why the difference between packages and profiles? Who knows? But the city of Edmonton does as the city of Edmonton does. Uh, You can learn about that and so much more at taprootedmonton.ca. And that's all for this week. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Municipally. Here he comes, here comes Speed Racer. He's a demon on wheels. He's a demon and he's gonna be chasing after someone. 